0: Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, August 2nd. Meta permanently ending access to Canadian news on its platforms, including Facebook and Google in our country, in response to the federal government's Bill C-18. Experts say marginalized communities will be impacted by a lack of reliable news the most. We had Andrea Gunraj, VP of Public Engagement at the Canadian Women's Foundation on the show to explain the impact small modular reactor technology could help Canada reach its net zero goals and developing a partnership with our Indigenous communities to bring these nuclear projects to fruition would be a win-win proposition. So says Heather Exner Perot, Senior Fellow and Director of Natural Resources, Energy and the Environment at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. And Canada leading the way in implementing health warnings on individual cigarettes, but if we want to stop young people from taking up a bad habit, wouldn't it make more sense to take aim at the vaping industry? Dr. Andrew Pipe, professor in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Ottawa, joined us to talk about the deadly facts around vaping. Meta, formerly known as Facebook, announced it will permanently end news availability on its platforms in Canada starting yesterday. It's all in response to the federal government's Bill C-18. I mean, I think we can all agree this is going to be detrimental to everyone, but how will marginalized communities be impacted by the lack of accessible and reliable news? Joining us to talk about it is Andrea Gunraj, who is VP of Public Engagement at the Canadian Women's Foundation. Good morning, Andrea. Thanks for being with me. Good morning. Let's talk about, I mean, as a whole, Bill C-18, I think, is kind of blown up and it's turned into something that it was not intended to be, and, and I think it will impact everyone. But when we get specific about it, how will ending access to proper news online for Canadian users impact women, girls, marginalized groups in particular? Well, I think it's important for us to look at some of the statistics. Women in
1: Canada are pretty heavy social media users. They um, use social media more than men. And I I really feel that this is a a matter of, you know, key importance because women do rely on these platforms, things like search and social media, to be able to get information on things like gender gaps, areas like health and safety and pay and employment. We all do, but I think... These are the underspoken topics and under-addressed issues in our homes, in our communities, in schools and work. So we look to these platforms to learn more about these issues, to learn about relief and ways that we can get help. Not having access to that news means that those mechanisms to get really specific information about what affects us as women, as gender diverse people, is going to be really difficult for us. We're trying to figure out how we're going to get through this. Um, and I think also we have this idea of a gender tech and time gap too. You know, women are heavier social media users, but they spend less time on the Internet. So they look to these platforms to curate information for them to be able to do it.
0: It's very interesting because, I mean, I didn't really look at it that way. I think overall it's it's a shame when you lose credible news sources on your social media feed, which is where most of us get you know the the majority of our information these days, and not to have proper news available to us is a real issue. But yeah, how it might affect certain groups, women, girls, particularly. I mean, it's not just it's not just Facebook at this point. It, it's this is going to trickle down to the other social media platforms as well. Ultimately, won't it?
1: Importantly, yes. Um, Google, I think, is is a big one that um, we're seeing is also announcing that they're going to be ending access to news. And a look at the times that you've Googled something to try to find information and the news hit helps you find that information. I think it's so important for us to recognize that, you know, it's not uh, a question that we use these platforms to find information to change our lives, to make our lives better, to be able to handle things like inequalities and gender pay gaps. I think um, one thing that people might not know, you know, the Canadian Women's Foundation has information about this online, and those are the heaviest accessed pages on our website, things about gender pay gaps and gender-based violence. And I'm concerned that that means that people really are dealing with these issues and not being able to get that information through news is a huge hit. Mm
0: -hmm. There's a tool called the Signal for Help. Can you tell us
1: what that is? Yes, I mean, the signal for help is a hand gesture that we put out in the beginning of the pandemic. It's a hand gesture, just hand up, thumb tuck, fingers over thumb, and it means I need you to check in with me safely. I need your help. And it went viral in the beginning of the pandemic because there was the increase of intimate partner violence and femicide in Canada and around the world. So people shared this. And really, in large part, it was shared due to a lot of news coverage letting people know about this and creating awareness. So I think it's a good example of how news actually can get life-saving information to people at a time that they're at high risk. Since then, the signal for help has saved many lives. Women and girls have used it in dangerous situations to get help, and I think that it will be such a shame if news coverage becomes more elusive for us. Things like that will also Mm -hmm. become elusive for us
0: yeah, I mean, it's not a funny thing at all, but, you know, my kids are aware of it just from from watching social media, from instagram, from from, you know, seeing that signal. I mean, they sometimes they joke with me, I'm going to use that. But they know it, right? And they've learned it, and they it's in their heads. and they got it from social media. I think that's the important point, you're right. There are so many things that we maybe don't sort of, I don't know, put too much stock in at the time, but it's in there. We've learned it, and it's there, and we've accessed it because it's been available to us, and and therein lies the problem, right? That's right, I mean, the tech
1: companies nowadays have a huge impact on our lives, it's not a question anymore. And you know, their, their investment in users cannot be overstated, and many times, users are women. It's again, disproportionately women use social media. But at the same time, yes, our media landscape is very important. We need both strong tech access and strong media. And I think that's where we're going to have a challenge going forward. We're going to need to figure out how we're going to do this because I'm most concerned about the users. Without users, there's no tech. Without users, there's no news. And we have to prioritize their needs. And I'm thinking that those users are in large part women and gender diverse people.
0: And and there's not, it appears at this point, much we can do about it. The the federal government appears to still be going through with this bill. And, you know, the the social media companies like Google, like Meta, are reacting to it. And it doesn't appear like the, the ones who are going to be affected, we, the people, have any say in the matter. Well, I think that means that we have to
1: really try to push our decision makers to go back into negotiations. I think it's important that we find a more productive and workable solution all the way forward. Again, for tech companies, for Canadian media outlets, and users themselves, most importantly. I think there are things that we can do personally in this landscape. I think, you know, for the individual user bookmark the trusted and evidence-based news sources that you might rely on, things that will speak to gender justice issues. That's important. You can listen to podcasts that roll up this information. You know, news outlets have great podcasts that do overviews the canadian women's foundation has a podcast on gender justice issues I'd encourage anybody to follow those and i do think that you know in the meantime it's important for us to think about what we're going to do with our decision making and voting power i think we have to try to um really push for this way forward we have to challenge the media companies we have to challenge the tech companies and say listen you need to do something because we rely on this It's life-saving information. The Signal for Health is a good example of that. And we have to find a way forward. There's things you can do individually. But this is a huge concern that, as you said, it's not just going to be an individual solution. It's a systemic solution.
0: Andrea, a question from Brad on the text line. Maybe you can answer this because I'm sure a lot of people think this. And, you know, how would you know until you know? Uh, His question is, wouldn't marginalized communities rely more on print media and radio TV for news? What did they do before? What about libraries, et cetera? Oh, well, that's a great question. I mean, yes.
1: I think the thing about media that we have to recognize, it's not just media at large. There are individual reporters that have beats that speak to things like gender justice issues, like racism, sexism, ableism, and those stories For a long time didn't bubble up to the surface but more recently there's so many more reporters doing this work at the same time they're not getting supported to continue this work the media landscape is really struggling so i do think that there is a huge impact on marginalized people before that time yeah there were libraries yeah there were ways of speaking about it and there was just word of mouth trusted sharing but i i really feel like it's so harmful that we can get access to this information and to these reporters with beats that make a difference for our lives. That's what we're going to have to try to increase in this negotiation, in this conversation. How are we going to make sure that these reporters can do their work and
0: get their information out to the readers, to the users? Important discussion for sure. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Andrea Gunraj, VP Public Engagement at the Canadian Women's Foundation. You can go and uh, find more online at, uh, let's see, the website is canadianwomen.org. Small, modular reactor technology might just help Canada reach net zero, but it's also important to develop and implement this technology in partnership with our Indigenous community. And to explain the why behind it is Heather exner Perot joining us, Senior Fellow and Director of Natural Resources, Energy and Environment at the McDonald laurier Institute. Hi, Heather. Thanks so much for being with me this morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Can you kind of break down, first of all, small modular reactors? So the SMR is sort of the short form for it. What exactly are they? What what are we talking about here?
2: So they're a regular reactor, uh, but kind of, you know, we're also working on kind of a fourth generation of technology. The problem with nuclear has always been that uh, it's very expensive um, to build these big kind of one gigawatt reactors. And that's, you know, on top of many other reasons, one reason why they've kind of lost uh, popularity. So the idea behind the small modular reactors is you make it more um, able to build it in, in, a, in a, you know, manufacture it, make it scalable, uh, assemble it on site, and make it easier to finance because they're not as big. So a small modular reactor is one that's 300 megawatts or less.
0: Is nuclear safe? I think that's still something that we we have a fear of, and is it irrational?
2: Yeah, I, I, you know what I always like to say it's it's like the you know airline industry transportation. It's definitely the safest form of energy we have but it's the one that people worry about the most because when you do have a big accident... Uh, it's very serious. But yes, in general, it's very safe. But another thing with the SMRs and this fourth generation of technology, uh, you know, things are a little bit better than the Soviets had in the 70s, is uh, we they are making it, you know, almost physically impossible, using the laws of physics to prevent them from a major accident like a meltdown. So this, this newest generation of nuclear cannot have the same accidents that
0: we had in the past. Okay, good. I like to hear that. I think most people probably are <laughs> happy about that. Uh, let's talk about the SMRs and how they might contribute to Canada's position as a Leader in clean energy development, I mean obviously you know energy important to us here in Alberta, and we need to talk about this
2: yeah so so there have been some great announcements um out east, so Ontario is moving forward with some of the very first uh, smrs for on grid electricity, so they're like I said, three hundred megawatts, and they're doing four of them probably. So that would, would equal out to what would be normally a big reactor. Uh, and Saskatchewan's looking into that and New Brunswick also to get off coal. But the thing that excites me most and that Alberta's looking most closely at is SMRs for industrial applications. So those ones are big electricity providers. But new, this new technology can also provide what we call industrial or process heat. So things that help us make cement or chemicals or in the oil sands. Uh, you know, melt away that bitumen uh, to make oil. So, so it's a very new, exciting application for nuclear that will really help with decarbonization.
0: And, and you said getting off coal. Like, is that sort of the the main impetus behind it?
2: Uh, you know, it's a, it's a practically zero carbon form of electricity, baseload electricity. So it's not intermittent like renewables. So, um, yeah, for me, for me, it's the future as we transition uh, in due time away from fossil fuels. Nuclear is a, is a superior form of the electricity for sure.
0: How closely tied are our talks to get these small modular reactors, this nuclear, these nuclear reactors in place and in, in terms with dealing with our First Nations people and getting them involved as well, the Indigenous communities?
2: Yeah, and, and so this is where the nuclear industry in Canada is able to learn from some of the mistakes and also the successes that we've seen in mining and oil and gas in the last 20 years and kind of start this newest wave of nuclear energy uh, from a good place. Uh, So as we've seen offset, they have a second chance to make a first impression. So there's a few ways that we're involving Indigenous people. So in the first is as we develop kind of the regulatory framework for this newest, for the SMRs, for the fourth generation, to involve uh, Indigenous experts in that process so they feel consulted and engaged and they can contribute their knowledge. The second is where you cite them. So wherever you're going to put a new nuclear reactor, uh, you know, based on our duty to consult, based on the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, the people whose territory it's going to be in are going to need to consent to it. And we're already seeing that. This doesn't, this doesn't need to be an obstacle. Uh, we're seeing in Ontario, they've consulted closely where they're citing uh, the new nuclear, uh, and, and the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission has also been consulting. So good things are happening. And that third way is to make sure that they're engaged on the kind of the economic development side of it, that they have an opportunity either as, as, as owning and leasing, which is what the mining uh, industry is looking mm-hmm. at, to use SMRs in remote mining locations, and the Indigenous communities could be the owner and lease that energy to them. Uh, and also involved in supply chain components, all those good things. And so make sure that they benefit from the development of this sector also.
0: Makes sense. So in promoting the Indigenous partnerships, does, does this help boost Canada's nuclear industry and, and help us become a world leader in this way? Absolutely.
2: So, you know, there's still, you know, public opinion in Canada and around the world has changed dramatically for nuclear uh, in the last two or three years. Um, and, and and so there is more acceptance. But as you know, there's still lots of reluctance or hesitancy or anxiety. Uh, people still kind of have Chernobyl in the back of yeah. their mind. So having Indigenous peoples involved, informed, granting their consent when it's on their territory, understanding that it is safe is obviously going to make this process go faster and smoother. And just take out, you know, take out the possibility of Indigenous communities blocking or protesting or not understanding uh, and making them full partners and partners through informed consent. It's not about pulling the wool over their eyes or or tricking them into it, but making sure that they're involved in every process so that when they do provide that consent, they feel comfortable with it.
0: Yeah it seems a win win for everybody it's Just, a win win for everybody. It does it feels like that's the the proper way to go. Uh, how about the nuclear waste side of things? Uh, has that changed over the years as well?
2: Yeah so there has been so so you know you know the diehards in favor of nuclear will say it's not waste it's it's spent fuel and we could still use that fuel again. Uh, and then also point out that we have waste from all of our industrial processes. It's not just nuclear waste; it's not the only waste we're dealing with in the world. So we have to get very good at dealing with all kinds of waste. But in terms of nuclear waste, uh, it does maintain its radioactivity for you know centuries. Yet. So we actually have a great plan in Canada. It's called the deep geological repository. Uh, we're going to you know bury it very very deep under our very stable um, uh, shield. And they're looking at a couple of sites in Ontario. They've been working on this process for over a decade, where communities haven't have had the opportunity to add to to be considered. Where they've, where, you know, they've applied to be considered for this. So it's very safe and open. as I think, this year uh, to store it that far deep underground in, in a very stable environment, um, where it won't interfere with water or or you know be affected by an earthquake or anything like that. So they're working on it. I heard someone say it's going to be the biggest um, industrial project, major project in Canadian history. So takeover from LNG is the most, uh, biggest private one. So it's it's big money, it's big dollars, but it's a safe way to store this waste.
0: Well, Heather, you've broken it all down really well for us. So how close are we to having these small modular reactors or SMRs here in Alberta?
2: In Alberta, you know, if I were to guess, I'd say 10 years. So oh, really? so, so really what we're looking for, the big, the, the in the economic case right now is to decarbonize the oil sands and pathways alliance if you're if your listeners have heard of that have been thinking about this
0: carbon capture seems like it can happen a little bit quicker thank yeah. you so much for breaking it down for us really appreciate your time all right thank you thank you heather exner perot senior fellow director of natural resources energy and environment at the mcdonald laurier institute Canada leading the way in health warnings directly on individual cigarettes. We talked about it a lot yesterday. It came into play thanks to uh, rulings that uh, started on August 1st. But should we be, was part of the conversation, should we be taking aim at vaping? That's the one that seems to be uh, on the radar for young people these days. So joining us to talk about vaping and potential health risks is Dr. Andrew Pipe, professor in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Ottawa. Hi, Dr. Pipe. Thanks for joining us.
3: A pleasure. Good morning.
0: Appreciate it. So, should parents be concerned about the rate of vaping among youth? Is it this more prevalent than smoking cigarettes for our young uh, young population?
3: Oh, absolutely. I think there's a very real reason for concern by parents, uh, as, as well as a very real reason why there should be concern by governments about the epidemic of, of vaping among youth. The assumption that these products are harmless is completely false, uh, and as we learn more and more about the nature of these products, we begin to understand that there are very significant implications uh, for their use, not, the, not, not uh, the least of which is that people become addicted to nicotine so very rapidly because these devices deliver far more nicotine than is possible, even with a conventional cigarette.
0: Interesting. And yet there are always going to be people who say, oh, it's, it's not as harmful at all. I mean, you know, no big deal. But I think anytime you're inhaling any anything, any kind of chemical into your lungs, it's got to be a terrible end result.
3: Well, you're 100% correct. I mean, e-devices or vaping, vape devices are literally chemical reactors and a whole an array of of chemicals are are heated to varying temperatures and then inhaled, and therefore all kinds of other chemicals are created in in, in this little reactor. And you're absolutely right. The evidence is quite clear that uh, these chemicals are going to cause damage not only to your your lungs, but also to, car- to your cardiovascular system. And, and there are elements present in, in the vapor that people inhale uh, that uh, are cancer-causing. Um, yeah, the, the, it's a chemical soup um, and the implications of which will will not necessarily be evident for years. It took us more than 50 years to understand the consequences of smoking tobacco. Mm-hmm. Uh, it uh, should uh, take us long to recognize the the uh, implications of, of of the use of these devices.
0: So, do you think the warning labels that are on vape products right now are they enough? And why aren't they more strict?
3: Well, I think warning labels uh, on, on vaping, yeah, you, they need to be uh, forthright and they need to be clear. And but more importantly. We need to regulate what's in these devices. And unfortunately, the federal government has been asleep at the switch on this, in in this area, and in contrast to so many other countries around the world, have failed to appropriately regulate the flavoring agents. You know, at, at one time in the U.S., there were more than... 250 brands of, of vaping devices and more than 8,000 different flavors being added to these devices. Uh, and the chemicals that are used to create these flavors are, are highly problematic, toxic, and can cause all kinds of uh, significant issues. So what we really need is for the federal government to immediately, as they have said they would, ban all flavors except those perhaps which which. Com- provide a, a tobacco-like or uh, or a menthol-like flavor, uh, so that these might be of some appeal to smokers who would like to reduce their risk and and, and use these in the hope that they might be able to stop smoking. Uh, the evidence about their effectiveness as smoking cessation aids is far from complete. Uh, and, and in fact, most individuals who are smokers who start using these devices end up using both conventional cigarettes and and, uh, and vapes and therefore the likelihood of them ever stopping smoking actually decreases and the health hazards increase.
0: I mean with all of that information it's just mind-boggling to me that they were even allowed to be a product that we sell in this country but you know they're clearly targeted at young people older people you know you, you can make your own decision but we I think don't you think that it's time we we put some strict rules in place as to who can access these and and really really clamp down on it? Oh, I, I'm in complete
3: agreement. I, I mean, governments, uh, particularly the federal government, has has failed in in terms of regulating these these products. Various provincial governments have moved in to, uh, to correct this vacuum or to address this regulatory vacuum that surrounds these these products. Yeah, look, I I believe in in harm reduction, but I I don't believe that we sell mango flavored peach suboxone uh, in in gas stations and convenience stores to. To use an example of a, a a harm reduction substance that is used to treat um, opioid addiction and, and uh, i, I couldn 't agree with you more the, the, these products require appropriate regulation it 's been said that for every smoker who may stop smoking using these devices eighty eight zero adolescents will become addicted to nicotine and that addiction will occur within 48 72 96 hours of using these devices and, and from that point on uh, such individuals are now paying huge sums of money to the tobacco industry which is really behind the vaping the vaping phenomenon and, and uh, obviously um now incurring health hazards, which will have implications for them for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. And, and the degree to which these are marketed to, to youth, it, you're absolutely correct, 100% correct. Uh, through very um, vibrant advertising campaigns, typically using social media, conveying a whole array of erroneous misconce- uh, 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 concepts and misconceptions, um, the, the industry has just uh, created a new epidemic of, of nicotine addicts in our community.
0: Dr. Piper, clearly in Canada, we've got it ass backwards on this one. Are there other countries that are doing it right, that are really, you know, somehow limiting or eliminating vaping?
3: Well, Australia is a classic example. In recent uh, last less- couple of months uh, has banned these devices completely, uh, except those that will be available on prescription to aid, specifically formulated to assist with smoking cessation. Uh, New Zealand uh, similarly has a a, a rigorous approach to to these devices. The European Union restricts the nicotine content of of these devices and, and, uh, you know, regulates or forbids flavours. So around the world, Canada is seen as being, with perhaps the exception of the United out United Kingdom, but Canada is seen as being an outlier in terms of the degree to which we have failed to appropriately uh, regulate these
0: products. Wow. Uh, question from a texter um, in regards to these vapes, w- should we, would we see the same regulations for cannabis vapes? Are they as dangerous as the nicotine vapes? Is there the amount of chemicals in there as well?
3: Um, uh, it, 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 it varies so immensely uh, because these products are, are unregulated and frequently uh, produced or customized by um, various vape shops or various vape entities. It's it's difficult to know just what is in any particular product. Uh, but certainly any time you place anything into your lungs that is heated and contains chemicals, as you stated in your opening comments, you are producing uh, very significant implications for, for overall health.
0: Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Really appreciate your time.
3: My pleasure. Thanks for your interest.
0: Thank you. Dr. Andrew Pipe is Canada's foremost expert on smoking cessation. He is a professor in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Ottawa.